Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant. Good to see all of you here. Welcome to those of you as well who are joining us from home. My name's Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here. We are three weeks into a series warning us about the various ways that our lives can get off track, the various ways that sometimes even whole churches can get off track. Uh, and so we continue that series, Misdirection, this morning, looking at the seven churches of Revelation. I think probably most people in this room, even those of you who are very, very young, probably even your children, have heard some version of the story of the sinking of the Titanic. 109 years ago this April, went down over North Atlantic waters to the very bottom of the North Atlantic, shocked the entire world because this ship had been dubbed unsinkable, the largest ship ever built in human history at that time. And so for years and years and years, uh, probably almost 75 years, we had assumed that the way this thing went down, it hit an iceberg, and that that probably left some big gaping hole they stipulated probably as wide as, as 300 feet in diameter, uh, and that that's what caused that thing to sink so fast. Problem is, we didn't really have a way to get down there and explore to see actually what happened until 1985, and when explorers finally made it to that level of depth, two and a half miles down to that ocean floor beneath, they found that there was no big hole. It was actually six relatively small, almost looked like Morse code in the hull of the ship, with a total open space of no more than 13 square feet. That's what sent the greatest ship at that time that had ever been built in history to the bottom of the North Atlantic. What's the point? The point is that big things start out as small things. They really do. In this case, just little bitty punctured holes in the right place, threatening those watertight bulkheads, put that giant ship at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean to, to this day. Sometimes the, the greatest threats are the smallest. Sometimes they're barely noticeable in the beginning. Many times they don't start out big. They start out small. They don't present themselves at the front door. They kind of sneak in the back or they sneak into the side. And what we're going to learn this morning is that same thing is also true, both of false teaching and of false living. That's our subject today. And we're going to learn it through an object lesson in a church that was called Pergamum. After the fall of Jerusalem around 70 AD, many people flocked to Pergamum. It was a safe city, a fortified city, and many early Christians found their way there. And for most of its existence, it was a strategic center for missionary work. And that's because Pergamum itself was a highly strategic city. Population at that time was around 150,000 people. That's a mega city in ancient terms. It also existed at one of the highest points in the region. It was about 1,000 feet below sea level, or above sea level, rather, with a nearly perfect 360-degree view of the surrounding area and fortified natural walls. It was a safe place for potential attack, so much so that Alexander the Great stored what in today's dollars would, would have been billions of dollars worth of gold right there at Pergamum, safe fortified, and because of that, it was also an affluent area. People came from all over. They built their homes if they were middle to upper middle class around the Acropolis there. There was a magnificent library, wide 
selection of entertainment and cultural events, diverse religious worship, also the kind of immorality that you would find in any major city. Uh, one temple was built to the god Zeus, the other opposite it to the goddess Dionysius, the goddess of wine. Part of that religious worship, shouldn't surprise you, included a lot of debauchery, a lot of drunkenness and temple prostitution. And so drinking and parties and brothels and all sorts of shows and other music and entertainment were commonplace there. In fact, when I think about Pergamum, it's probably the closest thing we have to Vegas in our own day. That was Pergamum. This church existed there. It did faithful work there for years. And, and so it's, it's where the church finds itself in this city, obviously with a, a moral compass that's very different than the people around it. And, and so it's going to find itself in some very difficult times, mostly because by this point in history, the emperor Domitian saw Christian persecution as something necessary because when he declared himself to be a god, they refused to worship him. And so these men and women, these brothers and sisters of ours from 2,000 years ago suffer they suffer physically, they suffer economically, they suffer emotionally, they suffer relationally, they're ostracized, marginalized, sometimes from their own families, and sometimes they even have their lives taken from them. One such martyr is mentioned by name here in, in verse 13. His name is Antipas. And Jesus, in naming him, is saying of him, here's a prime example of a faithful man. So, so this is the environment into which Jesus speaks. It's a strong church in the middle of a very challenging environment. And so if you're like me, you may be asking at this point, how does this relate to false teaching? Moreover, to apostasy, which is the term that just describes someone who just full on walks away from the faith. Well, we're going to see today in this message to this one church where these two intersect. And we're going to learn this, this lesson. Rarely, actually, I will just say this, never does apostasy full-blown departure from the faith, never does it happen overnight. There is no way anybody in front of me was singing break every chain with their hands lifted a few minutes ago that's going to wake up tomorrow an atheist. That's not how it happens. There's no way that someone singing about the blood of Jesus is going to wake up tomorrow and deny the message of the cross. I've never spoken to a spouse who cheated on their spouse, who ended their marriage, who made that decision instantaneously. All those big things began as small things. And because Jesus knows the church at Pergamum, he knows all of this is transpiring at Pergamum. He knows the potential for apostasy at this most strategic of areas in Asia Minor. And so he warns them. And through that warning, we get a threefold warning ourselves. The first one is this, that if we're going to avoid the misdirection that Pergamum somehow failed to avoid, we're going to need to look closely. And it's going to need to be at ourselves. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. So they, they, let's think about this overall assessment for a minute. And let's allow ourselves the shock of this, I have a few things against you statement. The, the overall assessment's a good one. In fact, it's a great one. Pergamum is not a cult. 
Pergamum is not denying anything essential about Jesus. Pergamum at this point has not gone the way of the equivalent of a mainline modern Protestant church that's just abandoned its commitment to Scripture. In general, they've remained faithful to him, and they've remained faithful even in the midst of this thing called Satan's throne which is probably just a collective reference to the altar of Zeus, the temptation to emperor worship, all of those kinds of things. And Jesus says, I see you there. You're in a very difficult place. I know you are opposed. I recognize where you are. And then he says this, but I have this against you. Anybody ever been working in the house, like working like a dog, washing the dishes or cleaning something up that the kids made a mess of? And I mean, you're just working yourself to the bone, not even really looking for appreciation, but also not looking for what happens next. Your spouse walks through, looks at what you've done and says, you missed a spot. You ever been there? Yeah, those are some tense times in a marriage, aren't they? Right? You're like, what is it? It almost seems like this. It's like, I know where you're at. I know you're doing good work. I know you're, a, I know you're in a hard environment. Here's my word for you. You need to look a little more closely at yourselves. Is he just being picky? He's not. And I'll tell you why. Because it doesn't matter if a cult does something wrong. Not, not eternally anyway, right? If the Church of Scientology, for example, is, is guilty of all the things they've been accused of over the, the last several years, then there's some executives in that church that need to be locked up and prosecuted, obviously. But in terms of the eternal consequence, that misconduct doesn't really change anything because what they taught wasn't true to begin with. They're a cult. So misbehavior, misdirection, false teaching by a cult, that's not only not going to change anything or make anything worse in the eternal scheme, it's to be expected. But Jesus says to Pergamum, you're not a cult. You're not mainline. You're not scripture denying. You're not Christ denying. And when a faithful Christ-centered church starts to waver, the consequences are far, far greater. And here's the big idea. Sometimes when our life gets hard, we're struggling, we're suffering. Being a Christian <clears throat> has cost you some societal privilege. Maybe it's cost you a job. Who knows? There's a temptation in those moments to think, well, I can get away with this, or I can get away with thinking that, or I can get away with doing this, this sin, that area of rebellion. It's almost, you may, maybe you would never actually say it, but what you're, what you're confessing in your behavior at that moment is this, God owes me this indulgence. He owes me this. And what Jesus is doing at the church of Pergamum is he's checking them and going, no, 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 whoa, whoa, look over here. You've got some things that you need to clean up. You may think it's just a small area, but none of those things, none of those things, none of that environment you're a part of right now, none of that is an excuse to sin against me. None of that is an excuse to be disobedient to me. And so to this otherwise faithful church, Jesus is pointing to every area and saying, you need to get that cleaned up. Get it cleaned up. And the reason is because you are faithful. Because your witness in this city matters that much. Are there areas in your life where maybe you've thought this will be okay because I'm faithful in everything else? This morning, through this message to the church at Pergamon, I think God might say to you, you need to look a little more closely. And when you've looked closely, 
You need to secondly discern rightly. All right? Use the right standard to judge all truth. Look at verse 14. You have some here who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. All right, there, there's some, there is some false stuff going on. There's a man, and you've ignored this, and you, this is not how you do this. You repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So we need a little background here. Got to take a, twi- a quick trip back to Numbers, chapters 22, 23, 24, to get the background of this story. There's this Moabite king named Balak. He is terrified of the Israelites, and so he recruits this prophet named Balaam, and pays him to curse the Israelites so that they can have some victory for them in battle. Balaam, through a strange series of circumstances we don't have time to go into today, but I'll just tell you it includes a talking donkey. Go home and read it. It's pretty intriguing reading. Um, comes to the conclusion that this is not going to be wise for me to do, and so instead of cursing Israel, he blesses them. Well, Balak, understandably, is very angry. This was not part of the deal. And so Balaam comes back to Balak and says, look, I, I don't I don't really have the spine to do this because I know what could happen to me. I know about God's promise to Abraham. But, but listen to me, King. I know these people, especially the dudes, especially the dudes. It, they are attracted to Moabite women. King, if you can tempt them with sexual immorality, you've got them. Okay? And from the moment that story was told in ancient times, Every Jewish child grew up hearing the story and heeding the warning of Balaamite seduction. And so when Jesus uses these phrases, that's what he's talking about. He's aiming at this primarily Jewish group of Jewish Christians. The teaching of Balaam, he says, is back. The spirit of Balaam is back. It's taking root in your church. And its most recent expression sounds new. Right? It's called the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is the interesting thing about heresy and, and apostasy. It, it really, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. All of the modern objections to the Bible, to Christianity in general, it's just warmed over stuff from the past. That's all it is. I am amazed when I go to Barnes & Noble to the Christian book section and I pick up a book that's critical of scripture and I read it and the author both introduces and concludes the book as if he or she is saying something new and I'm reading it and recognizing that's Rudolf Bultmann that's Friedrich Schleiermacher that's when that's when oh that's Satan I know who that is like there's a source here this isn't original nothing is original no heresy is new so when the Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, for example, they're confessing the same ancient heresy about Jesus as did the followers of Arius in the third century. 1,700 years later, it's just got on a better suit. But it's the same stuff. In fact, it would be funny if it weren't so tragic. The number of people who abandon the faith, I, I, Christian music celebrities that have abandoned the faith in recent years, and they're just kind of, uh, uh, they're all emotional and they're all like, it, it just, why did you abandon the faith? Well, I got no satisfactory answers. 
To what? Well, to the problem of evil. Well, there's only about a million books on the subject, stupid. Did you pick one up? I'm not saying we have any final answers on the issue. I am saying don't act as though these subjects have not been addressed by people way smarter than you. Okay? Don't act that way. But that's what happens, right? We want to think that what we believe or where we've evolved to is something new. Ecclesiastes reminds us, now, this is, people have been here before. This is, you are not novel. And where the teaching of the Nicolaitans is concerned, Jesus says, it's just Balaam coming back. It's just, it's false teaching that convinces you that sexual sin is okay. And so there's really one answer to this. You, you need to repent. You need to turn back from this. And, and verse 12, interestingly enough, is the message to the angel. This, this, this is the pastor. These are the shepherds. It indicates that Jesus' expectation is that the shepherds will lead God's people to repentance, that that will be led by people like me, all right? Almost every cult, by the way, that I've ever studied involves two things that are always found together, alternative spirituality and sexual sin every single time. One will always and inevitably lead to the other. All right? Now, which is why we have to deal with that. We dealt with a situation like that in our leadership here not long after I got here. Unrepentant sexual sin. We had to dismiss people from the church over it. Are we just being mean over that? No, it's, it's because your elders have a responsibility to ensure that an otherwise faithful church doesn't allow immorality to steer it toward heresy. And in Pergamum, Jesus reminds us, that the shepherds he has appointed have that job. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now look at Hebrews chapter 4. It reminds us what that sword is for. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intention of the heart. Pastoral authority is given... According to verse 12, to guide the church in that unchangeable, transforming word that is the highest and permanent standard. And Jesus warns the pastors in verse 12, if you don't clean this mess up, I'm coming to do it. Eventually, I will deal with my people. I will deal with my church. That's why church leaders have to be informed. That's why we have to be alert. Because <clears throat> side doors of misdirection abound today. Now, I could give you a lot of examples, but being who I am, I want to give you a non-controversial one. Let's talk about Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Hang with me. Some of y'all just reflexively, when I said the term, you, uh, I, I can almost promise you this will not end the way you think it will, okay? So hang with me. Hang with me. Do they? Yes, not a trick question. Not a trick question. Do we need to have some conversations? Yes. Is there a reason that statement gets used for those who go, well, why don't all lives? Well, they do. But when you have a system that even two generations after Jim Crow says, by the way that justice sometimes gets unevenly meted out at various levels, maybe they don't matter, then Christians have to speak to that. And one of the ways we can do that it's not by going political with it, but by actually listening to our brothers and sisters of color right here who have some stories to tell. 
that we need to listen to, that we need to mourn with those who mourn. We need to cry with those who cry, and we need to stand together for racial justice. So you ask, well, when is the... Uh, when are the Black Lives Matter signs going to show up on campus? Well, they're not. Really? When is Black Lives Matter Inc. going to come in and teach us? They're not going to teach us a blessed thing. Are we giving any money? As long as I'm your pastor, not one thing done. Are you confused? If you are, I'm not really surprised because culture has conditioned us to think of things in broad categories like that one and see that our conclusion must be all or nothing. See, there's a movement characterized by bumper stickers and protests and all those kind of things that some of our own people are involved in, and those are good things, to call attention to injustice. There's an organization founded in 2013, maybe not so much, but the only way you can get there and really start to think, remember, I'm just using this as an example. I know it's touchy, but it's necessary. Let's think like Christians when we think about something, all right? And the way to do that is to examine, right? Now, you, you guys know that part of the liability of boutique media is that the right lies about the left, the left lies about the right. You, it, it's not right, no matter who you are, to lie about your enemies, your tribal enemies. But, but what I've discovered is the best way to find out what someone believes is to let them tell you. So let's let Black Lives Matter Inc. tell us what they believe. I'm just going to pick a couple of, because that's all we've got time for today. A couple of statements coming up right now. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. No one, no one should be the victim of violence. Your transgender neighbor and mine is created in the image and likeness of God, people that Jesus died to save. So there's, there's some things here that could be commended, but it is not you don't combat evil by affirming something that's simply not true about another person. Dismantling cisgender privilege is simply another way of saying we deny that basic middle school biology informs what gender is. Brothers and sisters, that's not love. That is absurdity. It's absurdity. Let's keep going. Their other statement says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Now, do we want what's on the latter part of that paragraph? Of course we do. In, in the church, we are, in a sense, one of those villages that comes around parents. The problem's not the latter part, the problem's in the first part. You don't get to the latter by disrupting the former. We know, we know what Scripture says about the family in multiple texts of Scripture, all of which find their anchor in Genesis 2, the created order. We know this. But you don't even have to be a believer to see the, the lie in this. 
All you got to do is just look at hard data, every bit of sociological data that looks at this issue. I would reference you, among other things, to Dr. Bradford Wilcox, Chair of Sociology at the University of Virginia, perhaps the best known in his discipline when it comes to marriage and family studies, who will tell you on that secular campus that the ideal environment for a child is when a man and a woman are married to each other, have children together, actively raise those children together, and take those children to church. Every single study will tell you that it is the absence of that structure that is the cause of so much disruption, not just in the black community, in all communities, regardless of ethnicity. And if you fall for the lie that you can simply replace fathers with the government, you're going to be in a really bad place. And so these are the kinds of things where we've got to think more deeply than our culture would tell us that we need to think. There's a lot of things affecting the black family that we should talk about. Unjust incarceration rates, overcrowded prisons, criminal justice reform, all those kind of things. are All that stuff's fair game, but the nuclear family is not the problem. Fathers and their presence in the home is not the problem. So should we pursue racial justice, reconciliation? Should we listen to our brothers and sisters of color? We can, we should, we are in many ways. But hopefully you can understand just from this really brief excursus why we just simply cannot and will not walk with that. We, we can't. It's not, it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with this. Absolute, unconditional loyalty to Jesus demands highly conditional loyalty to everything else in your life. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is just one example. I mean, misdirection through the side door can result in a church that's more directed by politically charged versions of wokeness than it is actual righteousness that can actually bring justice. And so for faithful churches to, to remain faithful, we've got to look closely, we've got to discern Rightly, you just can't buy wholesale or, on the other hand, reject outright something because it either, on the one hand, makes you feel good or, on the other hand, repulses you. You've got to think. You've got to discern. And it's got to start with your own soul. And then once you have done that, here's the final thing. Commit fiercely. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Hidden man, a white stone. These are references to prizes that were given to a victor in the athletic games. It's given to the, the one who conquers. In other words, the one who doesn't get sidetracked. The one who doesn't get spiritual ADD, right? And start looking in other places. I'm getting, keep my eye on the ball. Continue to follow Jesus. This is the one who finishes the race. Don't allow misdirection to start you down the path that leads in apostasy. I have a colleague of mine in Nashville. His name is Trevin Wax. He wrote a book about a decade ago called Counterfeit Gospels. And he, he identifies there six modern manifestations of what we'll call misdirection, the same kind of misdirection, really, that, that occurred in Pergamum because of a lack of looking inward, check yourself, and a lack of rightful biblical discernment that led to one of the following. Number one, a gospel of therapy. This is the gospel that says, the reason I come to Jesus is so that I can get personal happiness and fulfillment. 
the first century people in Pergamum who are suffering would not have recognized that gospel. Number two, the gospel of tolerance. This is the gospel of judgmentlessness. Right? Some, some versions of liberation theology come out of this. Jesus died so that I could be freed from my enemy. The thing about the gospel of tolerance is never in that construct does it ever occur to the advocate that they might be the enemy. Right? These are the people who read the story of David and Goliath, and they're always David. Never occurred to me that I might be Goliath in this story. Gospel of tolerance. Number three, the gospel of moralism. A church full of good, upstanding people who believe all the right things, live all the right things, think all exactly the same way, don't ever challenge each other, don't ever, aff- you know, always affirming each other, which is regardless of ideology, just another form of liberalism that says your relationship with God as it is is just fine and there's no need for you to grow, there's no need for you to be challenged, there's no need for you to repent. Number four, gospel of quietism. This is the don't, don't engage, right? Everything's all about personal growth, right? This is, well, it, it's about my personal spirituality. Well, that's eventually going it, to ripple out and it's going to affect relationships with your neighbor. Number five, gospel of activism, the opposite of the gospel of quietism. All of our unity is found in political causes. And then number six, the gospel of churchlessness. Local church is optional. Local church is irrelevant. Here's the thing about every single one of these. Eventually, each and every one of these side roads out of the church becomes a false religion. Becomes a false religion. And and we've seen all six of them very recently. The answer is to conquer. That's what Jesus tells us to do here. To prevail over our tendency to take a spiritual side road. And here's Jesus' promise if we do. You will discover that you don't need those other gods. My hidden manna, my white stone for you is better. You know, it's interesting, 2,000 years after these words were spoken, if you go back to modern-day Turkey, where this church was located, you're, you're not going to find a church anymore. In fact, you're, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian there. Out of a population of more than 75 million people, there are less than 4,000 Christians in the entire nation of Turkey, evangelical Christians. What was once a flourishing center of Christian faith that sent missionaries all over the world, it's now one of the most unreached places on earth. And, and here's the real tragedy of it all. At Pergamum, by and large, the cause of death was in all likelihood self-inflicted. Self-inflicted. Yeah. You can't stamp out genuine, vibrant Christianity. You, you just can't do it. We talk all the time about three. Look, I'm a big religious liberty advocate. You, government can't stomp out the church. Not the real one. Not gonna. Just read a little history. Never gonna happen. And these brothers and sisters, they're to blame. The vibrant Christianity could not be defeated by an outside force. It's not gone because of the eventual advance of Islam 600 years later. By the time Islam got there, the church was already relatively decimated. These brothers and sisters took their own spiritual lives. And it started with the poison of spiritual misdirection. They left the centrality of the gospel for something that seemed temporarily more attractive, temporarily more fashionable, more effective, more successful. That that misdirection 
turned into a permanent side road, and that side road eventually turned into a false god. Apostasy doesn't happen overnight. It begins step by step. It happens as the church and her leaders ignore these diversions, do not respond with needed course correction, but it can also happen in your life as well. I, I talked with a man not too long ago. What we used to call in the church world a cradle roller. You know what that is? That's somebody who their mama brought them to church starting nine months before they were born. And the Sunday after they gave birth, they brought them to church, put them in the church crib. Like they, this kid grew up in church, was, was faithful in church, supposedly came to Christ at a very, very young age, spent time actively in the children's group and in the youth group and then in a young adult group. And I met this young man some years ago. He was leaving his wife. He just went home one day. There was no, no adultery, no abuse, no abandonment, no just, man, I'm not really feeling it anymore. Just went home, told his wife of about four or five years, I, I, I don't think I love you anymore. I think we need to just kind of call it quits and figure out what's going on. Now, here's the thing, cradle roller. He knows what the scriptures say about this. He knows. He knew who Jesus was. You know what he said? I, I'm going to go ahead and do this because God, God will forgive me, and, and I think I mean, God wants me to be happy. And if you asked him today, are you a Christian, he'd probably say yes. He probably would. He could probably quote chapter and verse just about any part of the Bible that you ask him to. If you got in a debate with him, he might beat you. Sharp kid, smart but there's no real love for Jesus. That's gone. It's gone. Because one day, he decided to give in to misdirection. Today, he's apostate. Dear brothers and sisters, don't let that happen to you. Do not allow a side road, allow a distraction, allow a misdirection to keep you from absolute unconditional surrender and loyalty because there is a real Jesus who offers real eternal life who brings real hidden manna and a reward that you will not find anywhere else and he is worthy of your disregard for all lesser gods run to him today father in heaven thank you for your people and thank you for your word Lord, I ask you in the name of Jesus to confirm us now, to give us the capacity to look to ourselves, to examine deeply the things we believe, the way that we behave, the way that we relate to each other, the way that we relate to our neighbor. And Father, may absolutely everything about us be governed by the love of Jesus as is defined for us in the word of God. Lord, may we be faithful. May we, Father, learn from this church when you say, I have this against you, there's a mess you need to clean up. Father, give us receptive hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit that will not recoil against that charge, but that would lead us wholeheartedly to please you in all things so that we may stay focused and we may stay faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.